Today on Podcast by the Bay, current Lieutenant Governor candidate for California, Eleni Kunalakis. Every step of the way, any opportunity that I have had to keep the pathway of the American dream open for everybody, everybody, because we are all on this pathway together, and that is what truly makes our state great. Discussing her vision for the future of California and also issues such as housing, transportation, and also women's rights. I think child care is the single most important element of economic, uh, of advancing the economic um, uh, opportunities for most women in this state. And finally, stay tuned for information about her upcoming meet and greet on April 29th at Penelope's in Foster City. All coming up on today's episode of Podcast by the Bay. Stay tuned. Podcast by the Bay is brought to you by Highway Soul Productions. Check us out at HighwaySoul.com and in conjunction with Liberty Realty. Liberty Realty, serving the peninsula and surrounding areas since 1986 for all your real estate needs. www.Liberty-RealtyInvestments.com Remember to subscribe and download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. You can contact Podcast by the Bay by their email at podcastbythebay at gmail.com. And now, another Podcast by the Bay. Okay, welcome to Podcast by the Bay. This is Andre. And this is Patrick. And welcome to another rendition of Podcast by the Bay. We thank you for downloading our show. We thank you for being with us today. And we especially thank you for spreading the word and telling all your friends and and people you know about our show and uh, really helping us get the word out about what's happening here at Podcast by the Bay. Because we're talking about solutions. We're talking about what's happening in our community. And also, we are talking about what's happening on the current political state. And so today... We have a very, very special guest, and we have an exclusive interview with the front runner for the Lieutenant Governor of California, Eleni Kulanakis. And so, Patrick, you got to meet Eleni, and you got to speak with her. And so, can you explain how was the interview and really uh, give us a little background about Eleni Kulanakis? Yeah, uh, no, thank you, uh, Andre. Um, I was very honored to have the opportunity to interview Eleni uh, Kunalakis. Um, obviously, with that name, she's Greek. She's re- running for lieutenant governor. Um, actually, I w- um, it was uh, Mayor Gina Pappen that reached out to me and said, why don't you interview this uh, successful lady? Um, Eleni is Greek. Um, her parents were from Greece. Um, she's very well educated um, and um, I think she's going to, when she introduces herself, she's going to tell you a little bit about her background. Um, before she was thinking about re- re- running for lieutenant governor, she's always been giving back um, to the people in the community, whether it had to do with um, homeless people or people in disadvantage. Um, she's very determined in, in her election. I met her in San Francisco off of Columbus Street. Um, the, the, the thing is, I found an ideal parking space and wouldn't you know it? I put my money in and it wouldn't register. So I was taking a risk. She's in was in a little old office with a, an elevator. I would say that um, the, the elevator probably dated back to the early 1900s. It, uh, you had to ring downstairs and they had to let you in. So not too many, more than one or two people could do there. The campaign was run by a lot of young people. It looked like her daughter was there too. Eleni was very, very warm to to speak with and she is um as i mentioned she is friends with uh, gina pappen who is also a mayor a mayor in uh milbray and uh she has some really mission she is one of the only lo- people running for lieutenant governor that is actually she has visited all of the 56 counties She's going to be having a kickoff in Foster City coming up at Penelope's. And we, I might know the owners of Penelope's. 
And they are also Greek. And I also want to mention, I had a kickoff there too. So uh, the Greeks are, are stepping out to support uh, Eleni. Um, Eleni is, um, you know, one of her outlines on her website is the things that she's she's interested in. She's interested in, in affordable housing. Um, she's interested in transportation. She's interested in education. She's interested in all the things that are passionate about uh, about what we need for the state of California. Um, like I said, Eleni's other back, uh, bad, big issues, um, she's, she's looking to, to somehow create a stronger educational system, which, which has broadened the diversity. She's at the forefront, as you know, the state of California has passed legislation that if, if um, somebody wants to go to junior college, the first 12 units, they will help you financially. As we all realize, City College, I think, is offering similar plans. She's all about the strength and the future of education in the state. And she sounds like she'd be a fighter. Uh, the, uh, she, let's take a look and see um, if we can figure out. She's got some endorsements. Um, her endorsements are uh, Kamala Harris uh, for U.S. Senate. She also has Fiona Ma as an endorsement. She has U.S. Congressman Eric Swalwell. Uh, a diplomat and a lifelong California. And he, she also has Stockton's mayor, Michael Tubbs. Uh, Eleni's has spent the time to visit all of the residents in the, in the 56 different counties. Um, so I think she's dedicated. Um, she, she's, she's for uh, women's organizations, Emily's List, California National Organization of Women Now, uh, National Women's Political Caucus, California Legislative's Women's Caucus. Uh, She's a Demo she, she, the Democrats and Potrero Hill supporter, Porterville, Tri-Valley, uh, Richmond Sunset District. She's got the Labor and Organizations, California Federation of Teachers, Northern California Carpenters, SEIU Local 2579. She's got the LBDQ organization, Equality California, Alice B. Toklas, LGBT Democratic Club, Harvey Milk, LGBTQ Democratic Club. Stonewall Young Democrats, Tulare County. So she she has worked hard. Uh, the, she's got federal officials, like I said, Anna Eshoo that endorses her, uh, Congressman Zoe Loffman, uh, Carolyn Maloney from New York, uh, Mike Thompson. Um, <clears throat> she's got the Folsom City County Vice Mayor, Los Angeles Council. People. She's got people all over the county supporting her. I want you to listen to her. I think she's she's a good candidate for lieutenant governor. We are honored to interview her, and let's go on with the show. Any questions, Andre? Yeah, so I do have a couple questions. I guess I understand a couple things. Did she work with? She was the ambassador to Hungary. Is that correct? She was the, she was actual the ambassador. Yes, you know what? And I almost forgot that she was an ambassador under President Obama for Hungary, uh -huh. and. Um, she spent some time. She's got a nice, in her office, she's got an autograph picture when Obama went for president. And that was awesome. She also was a, a, a secretary for Hillary Clinton for a portion of her time. So she worked closely with Hillary Clinton. She worked closely with Obama. She also has in her office, which really is a passion to me, about the farm workers and Cesar Chavez and working for the migrants. And she's a defender of the people that, that, that immigrated here to this country so for their freedom, the dreamers. She had a dream. She came, her family came from Greece, and her parents fulfilled her dreams by giving her an, a good opportunity for a good education. And she is passionate, and I mean really passionate, about helping the dreamers have their dreams come true. Wow, well, this is great. And um, I really appreciate the kind of insight. And uh, just to let all the listeners know, I have actually some Greek in my heritage as well. My my mom's actually Greek and uh, our uh, the, our last name is Havrodakis. So, um, you know, so it's very interesting when you speak about, you know, her coming from Greece and emigrating and things like that. It's uh, it kind of, you know, makes me wonder, you know, because I'm, I'm part Sicilian but also part, uh, you know, Greek. So we're looking forward to actually hearing from Eleni and just really hearing what 
her some of her perspectives are and it sounds like if she's looking to come into lieutenant governor and uh you know um then i think that it's a, it's going to be a great great uh, opportunity to really speak with her and to hear about how she feels about all the issues and uh you know just more about her so with that i think we're going to go ahead and get down to the eleni kulinakis interview and uh, we're going to go ahead and, uh, yeah, we're going to go ahead and play it for all the listeners. And if you have any questions, you have any feedback, please reach out to us, podcastbythebay at gmail.com or like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash podcastbythebay. So we are excited to present Eleni Kulinakis' exclusive interview with Podcast by the Bay. So with that, this is Andre. And this is Patrick. And we'll catch you on the next time of Podcast by the Bay. Stay tuned. We're live here with Podcast by the Bay. We're in San Francisco on Kearney Street, where we have the honor of interviewing Elni Konalakis. Um, she was an American diplomat and businesswoman who served in the United States Ambassador to Hungary from 2010 to 2013. She was born in the office of the Secretary of State for Hillary Clinton on January 7, 2010. She's running for Lieutenant Governor in the state of California. And I'm honored to interview her. Welcome, Elni, to Podcast by the Bay. Well, thank you. It's great to be on your show. Okay, can you give us a little background about yourself and how you got involved in politics? And obviously, your name is Greek, so um, I have a lot of Greek friends. So I'm, I'm very honored to interview you. And as I mentioned earlier, we interviewed one of your, the mayor of Gina Papin of Millbrae. Uh, give us a little background about yourself and how you got involved in politics. Well, thank you again so much for having me on the show. Um, Look, my story really does start in Greece. My family comes from the Peloponnese, and they were, you know, villagers. My grandmother, Katerina, never learned to read. She never learned to write. And she let my father come to the United States when he was 14 with no money and no English and by himself, knowing that he was headed out to California to work as a farm worker. And so he ended up here in California in Lodi. Uh, He went to high school, worked after school and on the weekends. And the people in Lodi were so warm and wonderful and the teachers, teachers were so great. And they encouraged him to go to college. So he moved up to Sacramento and uh, enrolled at Sacramento State University. Back then, you could um, basically work your way through school. Uh, And for him, he worked as a waiter, including, actually, at the governor's mansion. Uh, And he worked as a waiter. He paid $62 a semester. That included books. And he went to Sacramento State University, and he got his education. Um, When I came along, um, uh, I was, you know, my mother was a school teacher. My father had started his own business. They worked really, really hard. Our whole community was part of this great, vibrant, Sacramento, Greek-American community. And I grew up, and many of the role models, quite frankly, were very strong women, but not necessarily professional women. And so I looked, as my father had, a little bit outside of his immediate surrounding for role models. And I found many of them uh, in women in politics. Uh, Geraldine Ferraro was running to be vice president. I painted signs uh, and, uh, and um, campaigned for Mondale and Ferraro back then. That was the first campaign that I worked on. And I met her the year after uh, the election. Um, I was working for my congressman, uh, Robert Matsui in Washington. And I was, uh, I was an intern, and one of the things, one of the perks of internship, in addition to sorting a lot of mail, is that when there were speeches, sometimes you got to go. And so I was able to go and hear her speak. And it really, I think at that point, I really just decided that I wanted to be a person who understood and was conversant on issues relating to the economy and to public policy and to foreign policy because I'd never been in the room with someone before, a woman before, and heard them speak so eloquently um, in such a sophisticated way about these, these issues that you know, I'd really just read about and seen on the news. And so that was a really inspiring moment for me. 
Um, and it led to all kinds of things. So from there, I went to college. I went to graduate school. I was the first in my family to graduate with a four-year degree. Uh, and then I headed well, back. Where did, you, where, where, did you, where did you get your undergraduate? Well, I went to Dartmouth College. And again, it was just this kind of, you know, I read about it in a book. One of, the librarian gave me a book about schools on the East Coast. And um, I, was, I had this exploratory spirit. So no one, I'd never heard, I didn't know what an Ivy League was, you know, but I learned about it at school. And so I, I applied to go back to Dartmouth. And to tell you the truth, it was, it was maybe too much of a sh culture shock for me to be in New Hampshire and to be in that world. It was so very different from the rural kind of immigrant family upbringing that I had. Um, but I got an amazing education. And when I came back to go to Berkeley, I kind of knew that I was a California girl at that point. And I went and got my business degree at Berkeley. And then I went and I worked for the California Democratic Party in 1992. It was a historic year. I was on staff there. We uh, elected Diane Feinstein and Barbara Boxer, and everybody said it couldn't be done, that two women couldn't be elected. We called it the Year of the Woman. It was um, this, you know, heralded as the Year of the Woman. Um, and I never looked back. And so everything I did in my life after that, I always had one foot in not just good public policy, but in electing people who I thought were the most trusted to be able to deliver good good public well, policy. Well, you can't be more inspired to be in uh, Elney's office. She has uh, <laughs> pictures of uh, Barack Obama. Obama makes history by winning. I also saw a flag from the uh, Cesar Chavez uh, grapes, uh, Great March. But, you know, Elney, you know, when you think about it, you were two years old in uh, 1968. And in 1968, Bobby Kennedy was assassinated in Los Angeles when he was running for president. Um, I, I, I would say the Kennedys or anybody that, that's interested in civil rights has uh, got to be excited about your journey here to run for lieutenant governor in the state of California. I think what I'm going to try to do now is get into uh, a few things here to, that maybe you can tell us where you stand. Um, currently, we in California right now, we're experiencing an overabundance or surplus amount of money. Um, I had the opportunity to uh, listen to uh, Lieutenant Governor Gavin Newsom, and I know you're close with him, too. Um, what is the current state of the economy for California and surplus funds? Well, look, that's a, I'm really glad that you raised this because I'm the only person in my race who has been to 58 counties. And I have an MBA. I chair the Governor's Advisory Council for Trade. I'm a businesswoman, and I understand... Um, macro and microeconomic forces. And what I know, and what most people I think should know if they don't, is that the economic indicators for California show that we have recovered from the recession of 2008. Um, the unemployment levels are at historic lows. Uh, GDP growth is very strong. Uh, of course, the stock market is, you know, at historic highs. But the reality is, as somebody who's been in 58 counties, and I can tell you this, families have not recovered from the 2008 economic crisis. We lost over a million jobs in this state. Families felt it in either having one of their income earners lose a good paying job, or maybe both, in losing the equity in their homes in having to survive on credit card debt to get through the hard times. And when the jobs have started to come back, they have not kept up, the, the um, uh, salaries have not kept up, wages have not kept up with inflation. And people not only have not recovered what they lost, they're wondering how with, you know, wages not increasing commensurate with uh, the cost of living in this state, how are they ever going to get back ahead again? What, do you have any uh, suggested ideas to the voters out there and what your ideas might be on doing that? I think there is, a, in the whole Bay Area or in the state of California, um, a big divide between affordability um, and wages. So what do you think we can do in this state to retool? Sure. Sure. And, and you mentioned the surplus. Look, I, I know 
that um, investing in education is investing in our economy. It is, of course, investing in our people and investing in a stronger society, but it is also an investment in our economy. So I always put education out in front. Um, we now have the first year uh, of community college in California is free for new students. We have, um, uh, at the same time, CSU and UC system where it is simply too expensive. Um, now, part of that is tuition. And so when I look at the surplus, I happen to think we should be thinking about how to make the CSU system and the UC system more affordable for California students. One more controversial, I'm glad you brought that mm -hmm. up for the California residents. Not just it appears um, from a financial situation, it mm -hmm. would seem the UCs are obviously going to have more revenue coming in from foreign students. Um, how, do you, how do you balance that equity? Well, that's been capped, and it's different depending on which UC you're talking about. But there's no question we have to prioritize spaces for California students. It's absolutely essential. And so that goes to the question of the general fund. Um, it has been said, show me your budget and I'll show you your values. And I um, have tremendous respect for Governor Brown, but I am discouraged by the lack of prioritization as part of our budget over these last few years as California's recovered on higher education and I will be fighting for more. But I also want to say this, you know, I pledge that if I'm elected and I serve on the board of the CSU and the UC as Lieutenant Governor, I will never vote to increase tuition. But that's really just the baseline. I met a young woman, and this is a very common story, uh, a young woman in Fresno she was accepted to go to UC Merced, and she'll be the first in her family to go to a four year, to graduate from a four-year college as I did. Uh, and she told me she's figured out how to cover the tuition part with scholarships and grants that she's been able to work that out. She said, but it's $12,000 for the first year for tuition and $14,000 for the first year for housing in the dorms. Now, when I went around the state and I started asking those questions on UC and CSU campuses of why is it so expensive for on-campus housing, um, you know, I didn't get good answers. And because I have a background in delivering affordable and moderately priced housing, one of the other things that I want to really start to dive into and work on is how we can have more affordable housing options for students and faculty and employees on the CSU and the UC. Okay, this kind of brings uh, the question of, I had the opportunity to uh, had a short interview with Lieutenant Governor Gavin Newsom, so we talked about housing, um, mm -hmm. and on that, um, according to one of the studies that he said, we have somewhat of a 300,000 unit shortage. 3.5 million is this statistic he uses. Okay, so we have quite a bit of shortage in housing. With the growth of the economy, uh, the way it is, and you talked about it earlier in our interview with the disparity of incomes, what we've caused is an inflation where our teachers, our mm -hmm. students, uh, and our bankers, and sometimes our lawyers can't afford housing. Is there a way that we can somehow find a solution to this, and what would your solution be? So I worked in housing for about 18 years up in the Sacramento area. I built major infrastructure. Um, that supported housing projects that we worked and planned. Um, and then the home builders would come in and build homes. And in the years that I worked from um, 1992 up until I left to join the Obama administration, the housing I worked on is what is now referred to as the missing middle. So when I started in the early 90s, you could buy a home in the Sacramento region, a new home for under $99,000. But even when I left, new homes were coming on the market in the 200s. That doesn't happen anymore. Now what you're seeing is um, this shortage that is somewhere between a million and a half and three and a half million units has accumulated largely because um, the delivery system for uh, moderately priced homes has pretty much evaporated since 2008. And this is an enormous problem because one out of five Californians is living in poverty, because the homelessness crisis has ballooned, and because companies that are located here providing good paying jobs, 
you can't if you can't pay enough for your people to be able to provide a home for their families you're going to start considering leaving the state. So the housing crisis is literally driving people into the streets, people into poverty, and people out of the what state. About, what about, and maybe only you've explored this option. Um, I've, for the last, uh, I've been in 38 years in real estate, so I've seen mm. the booms and the ups and downs sure. in real estate. Um, part of the problem is, is that there's the lack of buildable locations. Um, in San Mateo County and in the state of California, there is surplus land. Um, I've not been able to uh, uh, convince any politicians to really produce that list of surplus lands. And I, I would think with the shortage of housing, some of this surplus land, if I'm not mistaken, is near the corridor transportation, meaning near the Caltrans, the Sam Trams, the bus system. Um, have you heard anything back there in Sacramento? Why aren't we talking about the surplus land that we have in our counties and our state as options? Look, I think that is a very, very important place to look. Um, and here's, here's what I know. Having worked in this field for a very long time, stakeholders are extremely passionate about land use, whether it's local cities and counties who want to ensure that they have control over what their jurisdictions look like, whether it's the environmental community that has risen to Herculean efforts to preserve the incredibly sensitive and important ecosystems that exist here in California, or frankly, whether it's those housing advocates who recognize that this crisis is leading to impoverishment and harming our middle classes. So, all of these folks come to the table feeling very passionate, but I also believe that we have the capacity to work this out. Because as you say, we do have what I like to call recyclable land, excess land that could be put into the hopper. We do have the ability to, to see an increased role on the part of the state in moving along the process and, and supporting a process uh, that will ensure that moderately priced and affordable housing has the best possible chance of hitting the market. And again, as I said, I mean, I think that, uh, I think that like all complicated things, you know, here in our state, we're really good at bringing stakeholders together to uh, tackle them, but it has only been in these in the recent past that the crisis has blossomed to the point that everybody is talking about it right now. And each day up in Sacramento, you're seeing work being done on bills that are coming forward, and nothing arrives in perfect form. Well, let's move back. It's just part for... of a of a collaboration right. to sort Emily, this let's out. move back on your thing because we did talk about it. From... Stanford University, the College of San Mateo, and Kenyatta College have all worked with what we call campus type of housing. What do you think of campus type of housing? I think that, um, look, and I've seen studies on this as well, younger people are less inclined to want to have, um, you know, the big backyard and a lot of maintenance associated with housing. Um, I think that seeing that kind of movement is a good thing. Um, because uh, there are some great projects that are coming online now in the state that are more efficient in the land that they use, that are higher density, um, that have uh, the kind of, you know, respond to the fact that people like, if you call it campus housing type, you know, townhouses, um, apartments uh, that use both the... Um, you know, provide multifamily type housing, but also have adequate open space for people to be able to enjoy that as well. And there's no question about it that that will help solve the problem faster. And one of the things that I do want to note is that um, the current planning process very often pushes project applicants, developers, right, that when they come forward with the project, very often the process is one that reduces the number of units. So what is, right? what's, what's your And feeling? if that is approached differently, that oh, can make a difference. Okay, what's your feeling about tiny houses? That's the new buzzword that seems to be going. Have you, have you looked into that at all? I think that they're great. I mean, look, that was two legislative cycles ago 
that accessory dwelling units, um, the state took a stand on accessory dwelling units, making it easier for people to put them in, say, the backyard of their parents' house, right? Um, there are other really interesting things happening out there. Here on Mare Island, um, there is a company that is working with the Carpenters Union, and they are starting a process to um, use a, um, uh, a, like a factory construction line, right, where um, they're building 300-square-foot units um, in a warehouse and then moving those out into the construction site and assembling them together on site in order to figure out a better way to produce, um, you know, these, these prefabricated units in a way that's more efficient and less expensive. So there's all kinds of innovative things that are happening out there. Well, I'm going to put you on the spot for a minute and see what, you, what what's your opinion of Senator Wiener's bill. I think that's bill 8. 827? Yeah, so that's kind of what I was alluding to, is that I think that um, what we're going to see with all of these proposals about housing is that it's going to spark an enormous amount of interest. This is the first time the state is looking at engaging on the housing question at this level. And again, it's happening because it has reached a crisis point, right? I mean, it, there there is no question that the lack of affordable housing is driving families onto the street into poverty and out of the state and those who are being driven into poverty i've been to some of these apartment complexes where um, people are just really struggling and so that's what's creating this pressure but nothing is going to hit the floor in final form we're going we're looking around scott wiener's bill senator wiener's bill we're looking at a very vocal and vibrant public process. Um, and we'll see. I'm not there every day, so I, I, I'm not privy to the day-to-day -day evolution of the elements of that bill. But I think the fact that we have a process to talk about how to build, for instance, more um, uh, dense uh, housing around transit locations where appropriate and in a way that cities and counties feel that it is consistent with their planning process, um, I think that's an important part of the solution. Do you, do you have any opinion on rent control? Um, I do. I mean, look, this is, again, it is because of the crisis that these things have hit a boiling point. Um, and my view, and this is, again, not to get too much in the weeds with your listeners, um, but there is... A bill that was passed many years ago called the Costa-Hawkins Act, uh, and it sets a date after which no housing in the state of California is el eligible. And the date is 1995. And I ponder why they set a set date rather than a rotating date. And so my view, again, because I believe that the state should have an increased role in dealing with the housing crisis, my view is that they should be holding hearings on a reform process for Costa-Hawkins to take up that 1995 date and other elements of it, because if it is wiped out, what it does is it takes, rather than having a statewide conversation about rent control, um, we're going to be looking at this issue being thrown back to every one of the 58 counties and every city where this is an issue. Um, and so I would like to see a state process first. Um, but again, it's hard to say because, you know, the time is ticking by and it's unclear whether or not the legislature is going to take it up. Now, I was told, and, and I can't quote because I'm not sure, but there are some... Uh, 100,000 units in the city of San Francisco that are under rent control and the landlords are just leaving them vacant. Are you aware of any of that, any any buildings in the city of San Francisco that, that because of their rent control, they're not renting them? Well, I have not heard that, but I, I, you know, I, I take your word for it if that kind of thing is happening. I mean, look, there's a lot that's happening in the city of San Francisco because over the course of the last few years, the whole world wants to be here. It, it really is an existential question for the soul of this city. Um, if it's purely a market decision about who lives here, 
how are we going to preserve all of these fabulous elements of what makes San Francisco so special, like having a community of artists, like having, you know, frankly, people who can work on a campaign like my staff. So um, it's, it's a rarefied environment in San Francisco. Um, and it's a very different question when you're looking at other parts of the state. And I'll give you one example that was just shocking, was when I was in Fresno and I went to a housing project um, that is mostly occupied, it's an apartment project, most, uh, not, not, a, not a terrible place to live, by the way. I mean, it was a low rise, uh, people had a little yard, um, but there were mostly immigrants living there. And PG&E went to the landlord and said, you're out of compliance on your electrical. You need to come in and do some upgrades. And if you don't, we're going to shut off the electricity. Well, the improvements weren't made. The electricity was turned off. And the people living in this project with absolutely no recourse and nowhere to go lived without any electricity for weeks on end before somebody noticed and said, you know, and, and, and did something about it. But um, these things are not acceptable in the state of California. And I know because I've been in this part of you know our economy for such a long time in housing that all kinds of unacceptable things happen if we stop building enough housing to um, accommodate our growing population. Why don't we talk about uh, two buzzwords and one buzzword that's going around which is different than affordable housing but similar to the, uh, the problem. Um, that's workforce housing. Some mm -hmm. cities are establishing, I live in a city of Foster City, they're looking at a project on a Saris Regis project, which is commercial, uh, commercial and office, and they're re thinking about rezoning it, and mm -hmm. they're partnering up, it sounds like, with the developer, where they're going to have a buzzword, workforce housing, which could mean teachers, police, and fire. Um, are you hearing any more of that buzz around the state of California? Because I think that the distinction um, for our audience, and sometimes they don't know, there's, there's subsidized housing, which is sure. government-assisted, um, could be a Section 8 or a county or something assistant. And, and then there's affordable housing, which is based on the county medium income. Mm -hmm. And then you have this other word over here that seems to be servicing workforce housing, mm -hmm. which could be a partnership. Mm -hmm. Can you make a distinction? Or what are you hearing out there? What is your Well, I'll tell you, I haven't been hearing much about people talking about the need for workforce housing, a little bit. Um, but I've been talking about it quite a bit. Because I think one of the issues when you talk about housing, particularly in the Bay Area, which is so incredibly impacted and where this issue is so rarefied, right, and emotional, I actually think you find a lot of agreement when you're talking about housing firefighters and police officers and nurses and first responders and teachers, people who be able to get to their place of work in order for the community to be a healthy community. In fact, I call these um, people the human infrastructure of any community. And if you have nurses who are driving two hours to get to the hospital where they work, and they're working all day taking care of your loved one, you can know that this is not great. And if you have um, earthquake-prone environment as we live in here and it may be enough for people to be able to commute in to work as police officers and firefighters but in case of an emergency you don't have on hand or anywhere nearby those first responders who you need um, you know this is putting lives at risk so I, I think that this is actually an area of hopefulness because I think that you can get a lot of consensus around the question of prioritizing housing for um, first responders, teachers, firefighters, and even a broader kind of sense of, of, of workforce housing. I'm excited that you're talking about it because I think the, uh, our cities and our county and the state need to talk about it as well as the federal government. One of the things that we're, we're finding is a, a major issue is, is that 
we're building up on the peninsula. A lot of units are being built and they're high-end apartments, kind of trying to cater to the economy, meaning your Apple, your Google, your Facebook. Um, I'm proud to say that Facebook is starting to, to look at campus housing, and this is going to kind of lead into the next hot topic, which is transportation. Mm-hmm. As we all are realizing, that is the number one thing that everybody's really upset with. Housing is just as much up there, but transportation seems to really resonate. So how do you think we can solve the problem? When I was talking with Facebook, Facebook, as you know, has put a million dollars up to study the Dumbarton expansion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How do you think we can rebuild the infrastructure and build a transit thing that would be more cohesive? In San Mateo County, we have we have Sam Trans, we have BART, we have Caltrains. We've got all these entities, but they're all seem to fighting for the same ta- ta- tax dollar and ridership. Um, and in the discussions that I've had with some people, we need to get everybody to the table. We don't have a regional transit district that interfaces with all the things. I know you were fortunate to hear my interview with uh, Mayor Gina Pappen, and she expressed that clearly. Mm -hmm. So how do you feel? What do you think we can do in this transportation crisis we're in? So there's no question that particularly this area, um, coordination on planning for transportation improvements, we've we've, we've left a lot on the table as a result of a lack of coordination. And that needs to be addressed. Um, But I also know that there, again, at the state level, has been a pretty significant effort to address the need for more transportation dollars. And um, SB1, that the governor advocated for and signed last year, uh, I think is an important part of that. It will provide $4.5 billion. Can you, can you, uh, for a minute, yeah. can you explain that to the listeners, what sure. you're saying? Sure, Look, I mean, at any time we're looking at new taxes, we have to take pause, especially here in California. Uh, but this um, was the governor's priority, and it involves a $0.12 cent per gallon gas tax which will raise $4.5 billion per year to spend on infrastructure. Spending and investing in infrastructure is an incredibly important thing to do here in California. It creates good paying jobs for the people who build it. uh, And it also provides the necessary infrastructure that, you know, we're on our roads all the time. I mean, who has not almost veered off the side of the road after these big rains we had last year with all the potholes. We've got to be able to keep up with the wear and tear on our infrastructure. It's incredibly important. And it's also important for keeping uh, employers in this state by, again, ensuring that the infrastructure keeps up with their needs. And then finally, um, if we're going to Uh, build additional housing and have adequate housing, we need to be looking at the parts of the state where in improving infrastructure, we can, um, we can also build additional housing. So it's, it's a core, uh, important thing that we need to be able to do for economic development and for um, the ability of our economy and our larger economy and smaller local economies to be able to function. So I'm very strongly in support uh, of this. But as you say, any time that you see inefficiencies in, uh, in major um, public projects, it should make everyone take pause. Um, you know, again, I, I have seen enough of that in my lifetime. And I worked in government. I ran an embassy overseas. You know, I, I know this is kind of a small example, but we had a piece of property that we were leasing from the Hungarian government. The federal government was paying for. We were paying $40,000 a year. Okay, this is not huge dollars when you're talking about the federal government. But we were leasing it for overflow parking. And I, they came back, they came to me and they asked me um, to sign a lease that the Hungarian government asked us to sign to renew the lease and they wanted us to pay like an additional 20%. And I brought the public works folks in, I'm sorry, the um, uh, 
buildings and grounds people in. And I said, why do we need this? Oh, well, it's for overflow. And I said, well, we don't really need overflow. And what would happen if we didn't have this lease? Oh, well, people could park there anyway because it's public. And I said, well, that's it. We're done. And with one swipe of a pen, I saved the federal government $42,000 a year. And the fact of the matter is that um, we need people who are not afraid uh, to stand up to the status quo and to point out how we can be working more efficiently in our public works projects. Well, let's go, let's go back because I think you bring a good point. What do you think about some of the, uh, with the problem with bureaucracy, whether it's state or county, what about working more partnerships with your Google, your Facebook, and Apple and bring them to the uh, bargaining table, so to speak, since obviously the boom of the economy has been pretty much that. What's your, what's your thoughts on that? Look, of course, we need, you know, government needs to be working with you know, emerging technology. There is no question that the opportunities for partnership, um, the opportunities for all kinds of things exist. I mean, the, the, the technologies that are emerging, the innovation that's happening in California is making us in so many ways the center of the world. But I also think that it's really important for people who are working in these companies to understand how much they benefit from the infrastructure that exists as a result of government. So they hire people who are educated in our schools. They um, build their physical um, locations uh, using um, infrastructure that is paid for by the public. Uh, they are able to operate on, under a scaffolding of a system of rule of law that ensures that if they sign a contract with someone or if they um, get a patent, that these things are protected. So um, I guess what you're saying is, is that since they're part part of the uh, uh, process going on right now, that we should be leaning on them a little bit more to help us get us to that housing thing. I know Facebook is developing campus housing. They're, sure. They're working on the uh, environmental report as far as the bridge is concerned on a reopening. So I, I think you're saying you'd like to see more partnerships with these. Uh, I, I actually, I'm getting a little philosophical. What I'm saying is that we're a democracy. Democracy is self-government, right? It is government of the people, by the people, for the people. And if those who are working in technology don't see the importance of their role as they are changing society and changing the way people live and work on a daily basis, if they don't see that um, they benefit as much or more than anyone for our system of democracy, if they don't take that seriously, it's going to be very, very hard for government to do it on their own. We have to work together. But I think it starts with kind of like a civics lesson for the Facebooks of the world who, you know, we know it's more and more is coming out about how they kind of look the other way that, uh, relative to things that were happening on their platform during the 2016 election cycle that may have significantly impacted our democracy. So that's really what I mean, is that I am very hopeful for um, a, a greater recognition of the importance, not just the government wants to work with the tech sector, but that they understand that they have as much of a stake, if not more, than anybody in ensuring that our society stays strong and that our democracy stays strong, and frankly, that their workforces, the people they hire, um, the people whose jobs they affect, that that is something they have to be thinking about as well. Okay, why don't we go into um, healthcare? And uh, are you in favor of single payer healthcare? Um, so I I believe that. The single-payer system in models that you see around the world from the developed world are more efficient and better functioning than what we have right now here in the U.S. But I will also say that we have innovation that goes on here 
in pharmaceuticals and biotech that are life-saving. And I mean, you know, I have family members who are alive today as a result of advances um, from the pharmaceutical industry. But I also believe that we have to ensure that in a free market society, free market economy, um, that there isn't profiteering that is going on that is playing into the fact that most people would spend their last penny for the health of themselves or for a loved one. So this is a place where government really has to be involved to make sure that the right balance is struck. And we are very, very much out of balance right now. Anyone who has been to a hospital for any kind of a procedure in the last few years and seen the kinds of outrageous bills that you get. Um, you know, I, I had, I broke my leg a couple years ago um, and when it was all said and done, and it was only by the, I had a surgery and one night in the hospital, um, $200,000 in bills from Stanford. Now I had insurance, so my piece of it was significantly less than that. But I told this story when I was out on the road in 58 counties. And everywhere I went when I told my story, it was met with other people telling their stories of just out of control, outrageous costs. So I believe that California, um, starting with the next governor, must embark on a process for health care reform for our state, especially because it is not likely to be happening in Washington, whether that's expansion of Medicare, whether that is um, some kind of a hybrid system, or whether it's a single-payer system. It is going to be a process that we simply must embark on, and we're going to need to have elected officials who are very courageous uh, in order to ensure that the system we come up with serves our people in the best possible way. Well, you know, it's exciting. We were just talking a few minutes ago about partnerships. Um, apparently, Amazon and Berkshire Hathaway are looking into a proposed health care policy. So I think you're right. I think we need to look at that health care thing, and we need to build on partnerships that are able to free that um, free that up. Um, one other uh, uh, controversial thing is is the affordable child care. Do you, do you think there's any way that um, uh, apparently you know the cost for child care could be anywhere from a thousand to fifteen hundred dollars a month? That's a, that's just outrageous. Is there any solution out there? It's outrageous. So there's um, publicly funded child care. It was dramatically cut. Uh, in 2008 and right after 2008 in the preceding budgets. Uh, and look, I, I have two children. They are two boys and they are teenagers now. And when they were little, I had them in a daycare. And it was a fabulous in-home daycare um, run by this wonderful woman in our neighborhood who was a friend of my stepmother's. And I knew that my, um, you know, toddlers were in a safe place and, uh, and, and I could rest assured they were with other children, they were in a healthy, safe environment with a good schedule, and I could concentrate on my job. I think childcare is the single most important element of economic, uh, of advancing the economic um, uh, opportunities for most women in this state. And I also know that I was really surprised when um, I had my first baby that it was so hard to figure out how I was going to do it. How was I going to make sure that my baby was taken care of and that I was going to be able to continue to work? And what I found with almost every woman I talked to, friends and beyond, is everybody faced this moment where you're like, oh my God, how am I going to do this. And it's not just about having care. It's about having care that you can breathe easy, knowing that your child is in a good environment. So this is one of the issues that I feel very, very strongly about that the state of California has got to look at and do more. Do you and think that create an environment where more um, in-home daycares can be uh, can be operating 
uh, and more um, daycares in general can be off operating at an affordable way for women to be able and moms and dads to well, have those you know, options. It, it, it might be a suggested idea with and it's um, we're already doing the subsidies with college, so we understand the the inequity for women is if they if they're a single woman or a single husband or a single father or mother, they don't have the ability to pay for child care. Right. Um, and I think if we're going to advance uh, women uh, as the main group here, don't you think we need to look at some kind of subsidy for child care? So there, there is subsidized child care, but it doesn't reach anywhere near um, the number of women who and parents who, uh, who really do need it. And, you know, when my kids were in daycare, the daycare was not open on Fridays. And my husband's parents took care of our little boys on Fridays. And that was how we cobbled it together. And this is what I'm saying. You know, there's never been a woman elected lieutenant governor in California before. And one of the things they always say about the lieutenant governor's office is there are some very specific things that you do with the environment, with higher education, with economic development, but it's also this bully pulpit. You hear that phrase quite often, and Gavin Newsom has used it on gun control and on uh, marijuana legalization. For me, if I am so fortunate to be elected, I'm going to spend a lot of time on this question of women in the workplace, and not just what we're talking about of the importance of having the ability to um, find childcare that is affordable and safe and and opens up all that economic, uh, unleashes the economic power of women in the workforce, but also frankly ensuring that when they're at work, they're not subjected to harassment or to unfair, uh, unfair uh, business practices that keep them in this current state where women continue to earn less than men in the state of California and women of color, frankly, are learning, earning far less even than that. So this is very, very central. Well, uh, and raising awareness, I think, is the first step. Well, I'm excited to interview you with Podcasts by the Bay. And this is an opportunity for you to tell us why, tell the voters, you've given us a great interview. You've told, talked about housing, transportation, uh, uh, and all that good stuff in child child care. What makes you stand out more than your opponents? Look, I, I'm I'm running a positive campaign, and we have built tremendous support up and down the state of California by visiting 58 counties. I think fundamentally, if you're asking people to let you represent them, you need to go to them and talk to people, go to where they live, go to Modoc and Mendocino and go to Stanislaw and go to uh, Imperial and San Diego and, and Fresno and, and, and Monterey and everything in between and meet voters where they are. And that has been probably the single most important thing that I have uh, really committed myself to doing is getting out there and listening to what voters have to say. But the other thing is, you know, I have walked the pathway of the American dream. My grandmother never learned to read. She never learned to write. But she believed, as so many around the world have, in the promise of America. And she let her son come here to work in the fields as a farm worker. And when I was 43 years old, I was sworn in uh, as a United States ambassador and sent by President Obama to represent the United States. I have walked the pathway of the American dream. And for me and for my family, it's happened too fast to possibly forget where I came from. And all along the way, I have stayed close to activists and organizers and people involved in our democracy and in irrigating and creating a healthy democracy. And I know the most important thing I've done with my time, in addition to providing affordable and market and, uh, uh, and moderately priced housing, is every step of the way, any opportunity that I have had to keep the pathway of the American dream open for everybody. Everybody. Because we are all on this pathway together. And that is what truly makes our state great. But we have work to do. Well, on behalf of Podcast by the Bay, Elni Konalakis, 
I want to say it's an honor to meet you. I wish you the very, very, very best of luck. And um, I hope I'm there when you're sworn in. Thank you. We'd like to thank Eleni Kulanakis for speaking with Podcast by the Bay and for really taking the time and for really helping us understand really some of her perspective, some of her background, and really some of her vision as lieutenant governor and really talking about some of the issues. And if you really enjoyed what she had to say, there's actually a great opportunity to actually meet Eleni this Sunday, April 29th at Penelope's Coffee and Tea in Foster City. That's right. From 1 p.m. to 4 p.m., you can actually do a meet and greet with Eleni. She's going to be hosting a meet and greet at Penelope's in Foster City. So definitely uh, you can go down there. There are, there are suggested donations. And um, you can RSVP. So that's Chrysa at Eleni4CA.com. So that's C-H-R-Y-S-A at E-L-E-N-I-F-O-R-C-A.com. So you can RSVP, get on the list, and go out and meet Eleni uh, this Sunday at Penelope's in Foster City. And so, yes, it's a very special opportunity for potentially the next lieutenant governor. And you hear, heard what she had to say. You heard her vision. You heard a lot of the great uh, insight and really some of her background and experience. And so it's a really great opportunity. So with that, we would like to thank Eleni for really taking the time. We hope you enjoyed that segment here at Podcast by the Bay. Recuerdo aquella vez que yo te conocí, recuerdo aquella tarde, pero no me acuerdo ni cómo te vi. Pero si te diré que yo me enamoré de esos lindos ojos y tus labios rojos que no olvidaré. Hoy esta canción que lleva alma, corazón y vida, esas tres cositas y nada más te doy. That was a beautiful rendition of the song entitled Alma Corazon from the vocalist named Nora and accompanying her on guitar was Martine, also known as Shoka. And you can find out more about Shoka and other artists at the Highway Soul Music page on the HighwaySoul.com website. So I hope you enjoyed that one and uh, we'll catch you on the next time of Podcast by the Bay. Stay tuned.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Podcast by the Bay. Podcast by the Bay is brought to you by Highway Soul Productions. Check us out at highwaysoul.com and in conjunction with Liberty Realty. Liberty Realty, serving the peninsula and surrounding areas since 1986 for all your real estate needs. www.liberty-realtyinvestments.com Remember to subscribe and download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. You can contact Podcast by the Bay by their email at podcastbythebay at gmail.com. All material is property and copyrighted by Podcast by the Bay, but does not necessarily reflect the views of Podcast by the Bay. For sponsorship opportunities, please contact us by email at podcastbythebay at gmail.com. Stay tuned.